The world hates Christians because we have a different calling, a different master, a different homeland, a different knowledge. Since Jesus proved that he is God, the world has no excuse for their sin of rejecting him and his father. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. all for coming. Fellow students, if you'd be so kind, open your Bibles to John 15. John 15. We're going to begin at verse 18. As most of you know, we've been in the study of John since uh, last year. We're now in the last week of Jesus' life on earth, which is called Passion Week. Uh, Chapters 13 to 17 all take place on Thursday evening, just before uh, Good Friday. Now, in light of Jesus' announcement that he's going to leave, he's going to the cross, and he's going to depart from earth, the disciples are anxious. They're pretty upset. Uh, They don't know what they're going to do. And so Jesus reassures them with some of the most dramatic promises in all of the Bible. This is often called the upper room discourse because it took place in the upper room where they had the Passover. or the. It's also called the farewell discourse. It was the last messages Uh, Jesus gave them before the cross, and today we're looking at uh, chapter 15. Now, chapter 15 is really divided into three sections. Today we're going to look at the third section. The first section covers the disciples' vertical relationship with the Lord Jesus and the Heavenly Father. And you remember that was the illustration of the vine and the branches. We're the branches. Jesus is the vine. And if we stay intimately connected with Jesus and remain connected with him, he says, you'll bear much fruit, you'll see a lot of spiritual productivity. The second section is horizontal, and it reviews the Christian's relationship with other Christians. And you recall that Jesus said, I want you, I command you to love one another just like I've loved you. In that sacrificial, self-sacrificing way that Jesus loved us by going to the cross, he says, I want you to love each other in that same sacrificial way because the world will know you're Christians and they'll know that I am real when they see you loving each other the way I loved you. The third section of chapter 15 we're going to look at today, and this is the relationship between the Christian and the world, the world system in which we live. And up until now, chapter 13, 14, and the first half of 15 has been all about love. It's been about Jesus' love for his disciples, the disciples' love for another, And he's been talking about love. And uh, actually in verses 9 through 17, Jesus mentioned love nine separate times. So that section of scripture has been about the love of the Father for us through Jesus and how we're supposed to love each other. And he reassures the disciples that I will love you forever and the Holy Spirit will come and reveal himself to you and demonstrate the love of God. Beginning in verse 18, which we're going to open today, there is a dramatic shift in emphasis. Jesus goes from highlighting love to uh, underlying hate. While Jesus' followers are supposed to be known by their love for each other, the world system will be known by its hatred for Christians. Christians are the most loved of all people by God the Father, and they're the most hated of all people by Satan. Jesus loves his own, that's you and me. He loves us unconditionally. And the world hates Jesus and hates his followers irrevocably. And up until now, in the life of Jesus, the three years he's been there, the disciples really haven't known the hatred of the world because Jesus is there and he took it all. I mean, when the Pharisees were angry, they took it out on Jesus. The disciples have really never seen that hatred. Now Jesus is going back to heaven and he says, disciples, pay attention Here's what you're going to face when I go back to heaven. The world is going to hate you, and so you should not be surprised when you're persecuted and when you come under fire by the world. So let's pick up the narrative in verse 18. Jesus starts and he says, quote, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it's hated you, unquote. Here's the principle. The world hates Jesus because he exposes their sin. 
the world hates Jesus because he exposes their sin. Now, the word if here really means since. Since, you could translate this verse as follows. If the world hates you, and it does, or you could say, since the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. And John uses the term world five times in verse 19. If you look at verse 19, the world, that term shows up five times, clearly a strong emphasis. The Greek word for world is cosmos, where we get cosmopolitan or cosmic. Cosmos simply means order, order. We look at the cosmos, the universe, if you will, and it's ordered. Obviously, things rotate with this way they're supposed to or it would be really deep trouble. Now, the opposite of cosmos is the Greek word chaos. Chaos means disorder. Cosmos means order. We get our word cosmetics from the Greek word cosmos. Cosmetics helps uh, you create order out of the chaos you wake up to every morning when you first look in the mirror. And you go, oh my gosh, there's a lot of disorder there. We need to put some order back to work on this face. That's what we call it cosmetics, order, right? And the Bible, the term world really has three different meanings. It can mean the physical created world. I mean, the, the physical earth, the universe. It can mean the world of human people. But in this case, when Jesus uses the word world, he means the world system that's organized by Satan and opposed to God. Uh, it's kind of like the old TV show called The Wide World of Sports. Any of you remember The Wide World of Sports way back in the day? There wasn't a world, uh, a planet, that was just dedicated to sports, right? It was a, the world of sports is an organized system of activities that rotate around and revolve around sports. So in the same way, in spiritual terms... Satan's world system includes demons and humans and institutions and philosophies and beliefs and activities that all revolve around rebellion against God. So when Jesus is talking about the world here, he means the world system organized, established, governed by Satan that is opposed to God. On spiritual terms, there's only two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. You all know this, and those two kingdoms are in conflict. Ever since God judged Satan for a sin of rebellion, Satan has been trying to persuade people to join his mutiny, his treason against God. Now, it's utterly interesting when you read Genesis. In the days of Noah, Satan came that close to uniting the entire world against God. He only missed by eight people. Noah, his spouse, their three sons, and their spouses. Those were the only eight that had not signed on to Satan's treason at that point. Scripture says the entire world was filled with evil and violence. There were eight, and the rest were drowned, and those eight were saved in the, from the flood in the ark. So Satan rules this world system in order to wage war on God, God's plans, and God's people. Now, Satan obviously hates God, but he can't really attack him. You know, when you're sovereign and you're almighty, you're all-powerful, pretty tough to attack God. So he attacks God's people, which is you and me, because we're proxies. We're Christians, right? We are little Christs. Satan's goal is more people in hell, fewer people in heaven. That's his mission. God's mission is what? No people in hell, everyone in heaven. But he's not going to violate your will in the process. So these two kingdoms are in conflict. And Satan only has three categories to tempt you into disobedience. Only three. You only have to remember these three. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Lust of the flesh, what feeds the body. Lust of the eyes, what you see, largely materialism. And the boastful pride of life, whatever exalts the self. Those are the only three methods that Satan has to tempt you. And they are very effective. But they're not very satisfying. Giving in to Satan's temptations like being in a life draft in the ocean for three days and deciding that you are so thirsty it would be a really good idea since you're surrounded by water to drink some. When you drink ocean water, does it satisfy your thirst? 
It actually makes you more thirsty. The salt in the ocean water is so concentrated that your body has to find a way to get rid of that salt that you're drinking from ocean water. So the body will use its own water to flush out the salt that you're putting into it, and you will die of dehydration, even though you're drinking gallons of seawater. You cannot ever drink enough seawater to quench your thirst. And you cannot ever get enough money, sex, power, prestige, fame, fortune, whatever it is you're craving to satisfy your soul. It doesn't work. Your soul was not designed to be satisfied by anything less than an intimate, right relationship with the God who created you. It's kind of like going back for seconds or thirds of Thanksgiving. Have you ever been to Thanksgiving? You know, and you know the food's really good, and so you have a plate, and it looks so good, you say, well, I'm just going to have a little plate of seconds, right? So you go back for seconds. And of course, you eat fast, your body doesn't quite register, you're full yet, and then there's dessert. And one dessert is seldom enough, so you have to have a little bit of a lot of things. So you lie to yourself, you tell yourself, the taste will be worth it. But in 30 minutes, you just hate yourself because you've gorged yourself. And then you fall asleep because you're in a sugar coma, and you know, you know, you know the drug. <laughs> Gorging yourself never, ever satisfies. That's the sin that Satan lies to you about. Now, Jesus told us earlier, told the disciples, why the world hates him. In John 7, 7, Jesus is talking to his brothers, his half-brothers, and he says, the world cannot hate you, but the world hates me. Why? Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. John 3.19, right after John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he says in John 3.19, for this is the judgment that light, that's Jesus, has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than their light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Now, we live in a supposedly tolerant society, right? The truth is, the only thing our culture tolerates is sin. They're very tolerant of sin because they love sin. What the world really hates more than anything else is a moral absolute that reflects the character of holy God. Now, the word hate is a pretty strong word. It means Jesus said the world's going to hate you. It means to loathe. It means to despise, to oppose, to detest to abhor, to disgust. Sinners who love their sin hate Christ, the light of the world, because His holiness exposes their sinfulness, and they love their sin. If there's people that really don't want to get close to you, that might be one of the... I mean, you might have doggy breath. I'm not saying you don't from time to time. But there is an offense of the cross, because when you come... They can't say what they normally would say because they feel convicted because there's somebody holy here. You know how I know that? Because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And their spirit inside them knows that the Holy Spirit lives in you. And they want to say it, but they can't say it because if they do, they're going to feel guilty and that's why they hate people that carry that light. If they come to Jesus, the light, their sin's going to be exposed. So they run away from the light. And even worse, they try and extinguish the light. Interesting. Have you noticed that general rule of thumb, criminals usually love darkness, right? I mean, historically, people that are going to do something wrong try and conceal it. They don't want to get caught. So a lot of times they would do it at nighttime so their deeds would be concealed. Of course, today we live in a culture that is so far gone that smash and grab stealing in broad daylight in retail stores is big business. It's making gangs millions of dollars. It's epidemic. The fact that our culture is dealing with evil done in broad daylight just is a reflection of how much we are addicted to and love our sin. That's a measurement. If you'd have told your grandparents that people would break in, not even break in, walk into a retail store in 1965 and just grab swaths of the thing and steal them, your grandparents wouldn't have believed it. 
they would not have believed it. And they would have had solutions to that problem that would have been very effective, but the culture today would throw up. Don't get me started. I'm not going to get distracted. I got a lot of ideas here. See, the truth is, people who love sin hate people who don't love sin. People who love sin hate people who don't love sin. Sinners not only hate Christ, of course, they hate the little Christs. You, because you live righteous lives. And God uses holy living by his people to convict the world of sin. And by the way, that hate can turn it escalate into violence. 1 John 3.11, John is saying, St. John, 1 John, he wrote his, his letters. He said, we should love one another, verse 12, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, that's Satan, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So Abel is righteous, Cain is evil, Cain couldn't stand it, and he chose to kill his brother, even though God said, Cain, sin is crouching like an ambushing leopard right at the door. Deal with it, or it will catch you unawares and kill you. And he didn't. Evil people will go so far as to murder righteous people in order to shut them up. Cain's an example. So if you're a sinner, and you don't want to repent from your sin because you love it, but you don't want to feel guilty about it either. The simplest way is kill the messenger. Shut the people up that are making you feel guilty, right? Jesus told the disciples, look, I know you're hated, but I was hated before you were. The Jewish religious leaders wanted Jesus dead because he publicly called them out on their sins. He called them hypocrites for saying one thing and doing another. So the real issue is, if Jesus Christ, the perfect, righteous Son of God, was hated, persecuted, and murdered... How much more will the world persecute us? We are very imperfect people, amen? I mean, we're followers, but we're not. If they would kill the Lord of glory, we're next in line. We're in good company. And since Jesus is no longer here in the flesh, the world persecutes us as his representatives. Verse 19. If you, disciples, were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world because of this world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But of all these things they will do to you in my namesake because they do not know the one who sent me. Here's the principle. The world hates Christians because we have a different calling, a different master, a different homeland, and different knowledge. The world hates Christians because we have a different calling, a different master, a different homeland, and different knowledge. So let's go back to the beginning. When Adam rebelled against God, he declared his allegiance to Satan. Adam and Eve were governors of planet Earth, and they, when they signed away that governorship by their allegiance to Satan, they lost rule over planet Earth, and gave it to Satan. Satan is now the prince of the power of the air, the one who governs earth under the authority of God. All human beings inherited Adam's sin nature, so everyone's born in sin. Our spiritual DNA is sinful, so we reliably choose to sin because it's our nature. So what is sin? 1 John 3, 4 says that sin is lawlessness. Would you say we live in an increasingly lawless culture where law is not respected? Yeah, I would say that's true. So sin is anything that transgresses, that breaks the law of God. Sin is anything that refuses to conform to God's law. Ephesians 2 says, he's talking about us prior to Christ. You, us, were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air of the Spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. 1 John 5, 19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of evil. So ever since Adam, human beings have been slaves to sin and Satan. And in case you didn't know, Satan's a cruel taskmaster. He exerts power over unsaved people everywhere. If you go back to your B.C. days, before Christ's days, 
Now, don't, don't go back there too long. But remember what you were saved from. You were saved from slavery. You were saved from sin. You were saved from bondage. Jesus came and he invaded planet Earth. This was a hostile territory run by Satan. He invaded it when he was born. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty for human sin. He broke open the prison doors that held captives free. But many people don't choose to walk through the open door because they love their sin, even though it keeps them in prison. So Jesus called us out of Satan's kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. And when we trusted Christ for salvation, he changed our citizenship from earth to heaven and our eternal destination from hell to heaven. We now have a new master, a new, a new calling and a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come, completely new things. So as you know, we are saved by grace, not because we are worthy, but because God is gracious. And at the moment of salvation, we're freed from the penalty of sin, and the eternal life of God lives within us. We are given God's very nature. Our DNA has been changed from of this world to of heaven. We have God the Holy Spirit inside, and as a result of that, we now love good and hate evil. Now, before Christ, we loved evil, and we hated good. I can remember looking at church members when I was walking with the devil, and I thought they were smoking something. I really thought they were nutcases. They were way too happy. I said, if there's a physical drug you have, I'll take it. And they said, well, it's Jesus. And I'm going, no, 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 I'm talking about something I can smoke or something, you know. <laughs> That's what the Lord does. He brings you joy. And the world doesn't understand that joy. So now we love good and we hate evil, and that's exactly 180 degrees, and the world doesn't comprehend that. Jesus said, you're in the world physically, but you're not of the world spiritually. When he says of the world, he means you have the same nature, the same values, the same goals, the same beliefs. Now our citizenship is in heaven, and we look at this world from the eyes of heaven. We physically live on earth, but frankly, we're foreigners here. We're aliens here. We're strangers here. And the older we get in this life, the more this place we look and go, I don't even recognize this place anymore. Right? That's really healthy. I talk to Christians and they go, they lament. Oh, this place is so strange. No, the more like Christ you become, the more foreign this world seems. This is not your DNA. Your DNA is heaven. You are a stranger in a strange land. And it's a strange land because it's dominated by sin and that's not your nature anymore. 1 Peter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So you can imagine that when Jesus Christ came, invaded planet Earth, set the captives free, Satan was pretty hot. He likes captives and they're now set free. Satan hates Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, because the gospel frees people from his domain. So he wages war through temptation, and he tempts God's people in the hope that they will abandon their faith in Jesus Christ and follow him again. So we're, we're not only strangers in a strange land, we're in a warfare on foreign soil. This is not home, but we're in war. We're actually pilgrims. By the way, I'm reading Pilgrim's Progress again for, I don't know, the fourth time. I've, if you've not ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you really need to read the book. It's the second most read book in the world after the Bible. It is enormously instructive. A pilgrim, by the way, is someone who travels on a journey toward a specific destination for spiritual purposes. And we are pilgrims headed toward heaven. And our time on earth is very short. You know, I remember when my parents and grandparents would talk about how fast time flies. And when you're 15 years old, that is strictly theory. I mean, it means nothing. I remember my dad and one of his good friends was a missionary in the Philippines, and they'd been through POW camp for three and a half years in World War II, almost died. And they would talk about longing for heaven. And I'm 13, and I'm going, 
Wow. I mean, when you're 13, you think you've got forever, right? So it doesn't mean anything. You know something? We're all playing the back nine, just in case you're wondering. You're a lot further along than the back nine, most of us, right? In case you're lying to yourself. Let me disabuse you of such foolishness. We're a lot closer to leaving here than when we got here. Amen? So live accordingly, right? I'll tell you one of the reasons the world hates you as Christians. Because they view you as a traitor. You've defected from the world system run by Satan. The world is a gang of rebels who have rebelled against God, the rightful Lord of glory, and they're loyal to their father Satan. They're rebels and they view you as a traitor because you're loyal to King Jesus and they're not loyal to King Jesus. You Christians, you used to think like we did, used to live like we did, used to party like we did, and now you think you're better than us. You don't do this stuff anymore. Right? You know what I'm talking about. That's one of the lines that gets thrown at us. What does Peter have to say about that? 1 Peter 4.3 says, For the time already passed is sufficient for you, Christian, to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles before Christ, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking party, and abominable idolatries. That's just a a laundry list of the stuff the world does because they think it's fun. Verse 4, In all this they, the world, are surprised that you, Christian, do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. You used to do all the stuff we did. We used to kill brain cells together. Man, we were on a fast track for dying early, right? And now you don't do that anymore because you don't think that's fun. That's right. I now know joy apart from killing brain cells, and you don't. So it shouldn't surprise us because the Christian and the world serve different masters, different callings, different destinations, different natures. We used to love our sin. Now that we love Jesus, our sin makes us sick. By the way, that's a measure of spiritual maturity is when you sin, it makes you sick. The world doesn't understand that. That's one of the reasons they reject you. By the way, we're pilgrims, but we're also ambassadors. A pilgrim is on a journey towards someplace. An ambassador represents someone while they're on that journey. Jesus adopted in his family, and he gave us kingdom citizenship, but he also called us to be ambassadors. He gave us the message, right? We represent the king of heaven in this foreign land called earth, and we proclaim the love and lordship of Jesus Christ over everything on earth. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you, Christian, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you may what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the good news, the gospel, is that the king of heaven, the lord of glory, the master of this land, wants to have a relationship with the citizens of earth. He wants to make a peace treaty with them. They're at war with him, and he says, no, I I want to reconcile with you. But your sin problem has to be dealt with. I sent my only son to pay the sin debt penalty so we can have a relationship. I want you to be free from your bondage to sin and Satan. I want not just to become citizens, I want you to be family. I want to adopt you into my royal family. And he chose and called us to carry that message to a lost and sinful world. But in order to do that, we cannot allow the world system to press us, to shape us, to conform us into their mold. Romans 12.2 says in what? Do not be conformed like a jello mold, pressed into the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. James is even more direct. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's a lot of people for whom that's really tough, really hard. They think there's a neutral path. I want to be friends with both. Doesn't work that way. Everybody on planet earth now is serving someone or something. 
we're all serving something. And the person who says, I don't serve anybody but me, I'm going, yeah, you got the worst taskmaster of all. Self is an awful master. People serve. You want to know how you know what you serve? What do you put your time and your money into? People serve money. People serve power. People serve career. People serve romance. People serve health. People our age serve comfort. Oh, how we like comfort. People serve hobbies. People serve the taskmaster called grandchildren. People serve free time. Don't take my free time. I don't have time for ministry. My free time is my time. I paid for it. I'm now retired. Ain't nobody going to mess with my time. Mm, tell the Lord that. People serve the approval of others. All of these, none of these are bad things. But if you're serving them instead of serving the king, they are now idols. And they are now competition. God has a way of dealing with idols. He smashes them. Because he loves us so much. In reality, there's only two masters. Either God or Satan, and you can't serve them both. You're not serving God, you are serving Satan by default. Now the world system under Satan loves sin and they put pressure on you to accept their sin. And if you conform to their values, they accept you. But there's no tolerance for anyone who agrees, right? People who believe in absolute right and wrong in our culture today are accused of being narrow, exclusive, misinformed, and they're hated, canceled, deplatformed, and rejected. Jesus said, why would you be surprised? This world system is operated by Satan. He hates you because you represent everything that Jesus Christ came to destroy. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus hates sin. If you love sin, you're going to hate your enemies. Don't be surprised. Christians will be prosecuted, persecuted, attacked. Some will be jailed. Some will be executed. And Jesus said, they hate Christians because they don't have a relationship with me. And Christians all over the world are being persecuted right now, including our very own country. It might mean losing your job, your family, your freedom, your life. It certainly can mean being rejected and marginalized, it, it, it treated as if you don't belong to a group anymore. You ever been in a group of people you used to hang with, and now that you're a Christian, they kind of look at you with the... You know, they kind of look at you with a hairy eyeball, a little strange, you know. It's like the missionaries, they were bringing to the gospel to a tribe of cannibals. And one of the tribes was looking at them real carefully. And the missionary said, why are you staring at us that way? And he said, well, in my tribe, my job description is the meat inspector. <laughs> That's how some people look at you. You get the feeling, right? Jesus warned his disciples about this in Matthew 10. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, I'm going to get back to this. Who eats sheep? Do sheep eat wolves? No, no. Wolves eat sheep. You got that? And sheep are helpless against wolves, yes? Sheep can't attack and kill wolves. So, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent of doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge or whip you in their synagogues. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. You will be hated by all because of me. Now, Jesus says, be alert, persecution is coming. I struggled with this for a long time. I get being innocent as doves. I used to kill and bake doves. I mean, they're great with bacon. But what is a, a serpent's not really smart. So when you say be shrewd as serpents, what's the deal? I read a zoologist who said he struggled as a Christian, and he said the one thing a serpent is shrewd at is they are always alert. A snake on a rock sunning himself, even if they're sleeping, their eyes are open and they can detect movement 24-7. So he says, be alert, be alert, be shrewd, pay attention. The word persecute, by the way, is an interesting word. It means to chase, to hunt, to attack. It, it's the picture of kind of like a predator 
single-mindedly pursuing their prey like a wolf pack running down an elk calf in deep snow in order to kill and eat it. That's the picture here. You're going to be persecuted, chased down, hunted. Jesus said, if they persecuted you, me, and many of them did, they will also persecute you. However, if they kept my word, and by the way, some of them did, they will keep yours also. So just to kind of track the track record of Jesus' predictions. Jesus' followers, in fact, were persecuted and ultimately executed. Matthew was killed by the sword in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged by horses through the streets of Alexandria until he was dead. Luke was hung on an olive tree in Greece. John was placed in boiling oil, did not die, was exiled to the island of Patmos to write Revelation. Peter was crucified upside down in robe under Nero. James, the brother of John, was beheaded in Jerusalem. James, the son of Alphaeus, was thrown down from the high temple wall and beaten to death with clubs. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Andrew was crucified and preached from the cross to his persecutors until he died. Thomas was run through a lance in India. Jude was shot through with arrows, and Paul was beheaded. And you say, boy, this is such a positive message, Brad. It's just amazing <laughs> to me, right? I'm so excited to know that I'm being persecuted by the world. And yet every single one of them, if you talk to them today in heaven, they would say, it is a privilege to lay down my life for the one who laid down his life for me. God didn't say, I called you all to be martyrs. He didn't say that. If he calls you to be martyrs, he'll be, give you grace to be a martyr. What most of us have is not the problem of dying for Jesus. We have the problem of living for him. Like getting out of bed in the morning and thinking about what his agenda for the day is instead of what my agenda for the day is. That's called laying down your life that day. Jesus, what's your agenda for today? Instead of what's my agenda for today, right? It's been estimated that Somewhere north of 70 million Christians have lost their lives for the faith since the time of Christ. More than half of those in the 20th century under communist regimes. However, despite all that persecution right now, somewhere north of 2 billion Christians alive on planet Earth. A 2.4. The gospel is succeeding. It's victorious, just like Jesus promised. Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 23, he who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Here's the principle. Since Jesus proved that he is God, the world has no excuse for their sin of rejecting him and his father. Since Jesus proved that he is God, the world has no excuse for their sin of rejecting him and his father. Jesus said, the world's going to persecute you because they do not know me, right? He's not saying if I hadn't come, they would have no sin. They, I mean, they've had sin nature since Adam. Jesus said, I came to earth and through my words and my works, I revealed who God is to the human race. I am God in human flesh. Hebrews 1.1 says, God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many ways and in many portions, in these last days has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So Jesus is the final revelation of God to human nature. If you want to know what God is like, you don't have to guess. You read the Gospels, and you see Jesus. And Jesus is God. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. Jesus revealed God and God's plan for the planet, right? Since Jesus is God's only provision for sin, there's only one way you go to hell. There is only one sin that's not forgivable. Only one. It's rejecting Christ's payment for your sins. There's no individual sin that can't be forgiven. None. I don't care what sin you've done. You murder your mother, kill your father. Those are forgivable. What is not forgiven is rejecting God's only solution to deal with sin, which is Jesus Christ the Son. 
Interesting, Jesus says, my father, not the father. He's saying, I'm, I got the same nature as father, right? And Jesus pronounced judgment on those who saw his miraculous signs and yet with full knowledge refused to repent of their sin. What did he say in Matthew eleven twenty three? 23? This got my attention. And you, Capernaum, by the way, that was his ministry headquarters city in northern Israel. He spent two, 18 months to two years in Capernaum. That was his headquarters. You, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And you say, wow, that's pretty direct. Yeah, the Lord spoke truth. And the reason is, those who have been given the greatest revelation of Jesus and still reject him have the most guilt. Jesus spent 18 months face-to-face with the Jews in Capernaum, and they rejected him. Therefore, their judgment is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah because they had more light. They had direct contact with the Lord Jesus Christ for 18 months. And they refused to believe that he was the Messiah despite the evidence. Right? Verse 25. But they, the world, have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Here's the principle. The world's hatred of Christians fulfills Scripture and is part of God's redemptive plan. The world's hatred of Christians fulfills Scripture and is part of God's redemptive plan. Just so you know, the world system will never, ever jeopardize God's redemptive plan. Ever. The opposition of Satan, the opposition of unbelievers who follow Satan, will never jeopardize God's plan. The world's hatred of Christ and Christians is actually part of God's redemptive plan. He knew they would do it. The world crucified Christ. The world persecutes Christians in order to fulfill Scripture. David writes in Psalm 69.4, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Now, how many enemies do you have? I know some of you are bald. You don't have many enemies. You have much hair. But... Some of you have a lot of hair. This means you have a lot of enemies. Here I am looking at you, baby. David is saying, without a cause, I have more enemies than the hairs on my head. If David could be hated unjustly without a cause... How much more unjust is the hatred for the Son of God? And those who hate Jesus are condemned by the Scriptures. So the question is, okay, Brad, in light of all this, how can the Christian possibly withstand and overcome the hatred from Satan's world system? Glad you asked. Here's hope. Read verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Here's the principle. Despite the world's hatred, God the Holy Spirit supernaturally empowers Christians to effectively communicate the truth about Jesus. Let me say that again. Despite the world's hatred, God the Holy Spirit supernaturally empowers Christians to effectively communicate the truth about Jesus. What's so interesting about these two verses is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all involved in the life of the believer at the same time. Now, I know that our human response, we don't like persecution. I understand that. It's tempting to try and escape it and be silent about our loyalty to Jesus. Back in the day, the world was evil, and some Christians decided that they were going to escape it all. They became monastics, right? They joined a monastery, they joined a, a convent if you were a nun, etc. So that was, they became ascetics, they went out in the desert, the Essenes, etc. They, they got away from the evil world where it's just Christians in this particular community. Today we're a little more sophisticated, we just moved to red states because we think there's going to be less sin there. It's the same difference. Right? Same difference. I mean, I'm moving someplace where there's more of God's people and less of Satan's people. Let me tell you, God has people where you don't expect, and Satan has people where you don't expect either. Right? 
Some people, in order to avoid persecution, just water down the gospel. Well, I'm not going to talk about sin or Satan or hell or judgment. I'm just going to talk about all the good stuff you get when you come to Christ, right? However, God himself lives inside you, which means you have supernatural power to help you in making disciples. 1 John 4, 4 says what? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit is greater than the enemy. Because persecution is promised, but victory is guaranteed. God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside us. And one of the responsibilities of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the truth about Jesus, both the believers and unbelievers. See, when you are sharing your faith with someone, if you're not listening to the Holy Spirit, you're doing it in the, in the flesh, which is not going to work. And if you haven't prayed for them, and the Holy Spirit doesn't open their hearts and open their minds, you're spitting in the wind. The Holy Spirit has to empower you to speak and empower them to listen, and he's promised to do both. So before you talk to them, talk to the Lord in depth and ask him to open the doors and open the hearts and open the circumstances. Now, there's some really good news in the middle of the world's hatred. One, when you stand with Jesus and stand for Jesus, you will be persecuted, but you're in really good company. You're standing with the creator of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You're standing with God. You are demonstrating that you really are a Christian. Number two, none of this hatred surprised Jesus. It's predicted in Scripture, and God is in control of everything, including the hassles you get from the world, including the persecution you will get. God is in charge of that, all of it, and he will give us the strength to endure it and triumph over it. Third, some who hear the gospel will respond. What did Jesus say with the sower and the seed? You got hard soil, rocky soil, thorny soil, and believe it or not, there really is some good soil. And they will hear and respond to the gospel. And you don't know what the soil is because you don't know what the heart condition is like. That's why when we share people, share Jesus with people, we pray that the Lord will soften that soil and it will bear fruit. And lastly... Victory is assured, and our heavenly reward is guaranteed. Here's Matthew 5.11. This is so counterintuitive. When you first read it, you go, Jesus, you have to be kidding me. Really? Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice! And be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You cannot do that without divine help. Because our flesh looks at persecution and goes, whoa, I need to either run or I need to nuke them, Right? As opposed to saying, rejoice because I'm in good company because they treated Jesus this way and they treated the prophets this way and they treated Christians before me in this manner. That's why we walk by faith and we say, Lord, you will give me the strength to accomplish what you want to accomplish whether I get persecuted or not. We'll look at this greater detail in the next couple of weeks, but John 16, 33 really sums it up. Jesus said, these things, everything in the last four chapters I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, which means pressure. But take courage, which is a command, what? I have overcome the world. So regardless of human persecution or satanic opposition, we can live with confidence and joy not because we don't face opposition, but because Jesus has already over, overcome all the opposition when he died and rose again. Okay, let me summarize, and then Tom, you'll come and do prayer and praise. I know this is not what our culture teaches us, but we are in a battle. We are in warfare. It's the souls of men and women that are at stake. If you think Satan's going to let you take one of his souls that he wants in hell without a fight, you're in la-la land. It's going to be a battle. 
but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Right? So the world hates Jesus because he exposes their sin. Number two, the world hates Christians because we have a different calling, a different master, a different homeland, and different knowledge. Number three, since Jesus proved that he is God through his words and his works, the world has no excuse for their sin of rejecting him and their father and his father. Number four, the world's hatred of Christians fulfills scripture and is part of God's redemptive plan. I would prefer not to have persecution. I'd prefer not to have suffering. And the Lord says, Brad, you need that. For me to shape you like Jesus, you need suffering and you need opposition. I'm going, am I really that bad? He says, you have no idea. How far from the mark you currently are. Take courage. Keep your eyes on me. I will enable it. And lastly, despite the world's hatred, God the Holy Spirit supernaturally empowers Christians to effectively communicate the truth about Jesus. So, despite the opposition, as a matter of fact, if you never have any opposition, you have to wonder, am I doing any good? Am I doing any good? Despite the world's hatred, God the Holy Spirit will empower you to effectively communicate the truth. Okay. That's a mouthful, yes? In a few verses, God has enabled John to tell us the reality of the world we're in. One of the things I love is the Lord Jesus Christ will never motivate you with falsehoods. He always motivates you with truth. Keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on him. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.